Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover, and this is episode 40 of the Lawyerist Podcast. This is a replay of my very first conversation for the podcast with Alan Dershowitz. This is a weekly podcast about lawyering and law practice. You can subscribe to the show in iTunes or using your favorite podcast app, or you can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. If you enjoy the show, we would really appreciate it if you took a few seconds to give us a rating in iTunes. Please take a minute to check out our lawyering survival guides at lawyerist.com slash guides, or click on guides at the top of the site. Use a coupon code PODCAST to get a 50% discount on your order. Just enter the word PODCAST into the checkout form. Sponsoring today's podcast is Ruby Receptionists. Trust me, give Ruby a try. Sign up at callruby.com slash lawyerist, and Ruby will set you up for free. So, without further ado, here is my conversation with Alan Dershowitz. Newsweek has called you the nation's most peripatetic civil liberties lawyer and one of its most distinguished defenders of individual rights. Every time I look you up, I I see that quote. So either you like it or people like to apply it to you. Uh, How would you describe yourself? What's your your short bio that you give when you're forced to give one? Well, I'm peripatetic. I am all over (laughs) the place. I'm supposed to be retired from Harvard Law School, but I'm busier than ever. I'm involved in cases in the Ukraine and Israel and England and uh, you name it, uh, and um, you know, actively involved in uh, defending Israel against false charges. I just written a new book called Terror Tunnels: The Case for Israel's Just War Against Hamas. And um, I'm doing a million things, enjoying it, um, living now largely in Florida and New York rather than Cambridge, mm-hmm. and uh, finish just finished 50 years of teaching at Harvard Law School, where I've had 10,000 students and. Uh, uh, you know, lots of clients over the years, lots of books. So I've had a full, very full professional and personal life. Yeah, you've uh, among all of those things, you've written quite a few books, and I'd like to take you mm-hmm. back 13 years to one uh, called "Letters to a Young Lawyer" that you wrote. Oh yeah, that's one of my favorites. Yeah, I really, I, I keep getting letters from young lawyers all over the world. That book's been published in several languages, including in several Asian languages, and. Mm-hmm. I love getting emails from young uh, law students in China or in Korea saying, you know, I read this chapter, that chapter, and it really resonates for me. So uh, the book is about 13 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me start with the big question, which is, uh, of all of the things that may have changed in the last 13 years, how much of it would, is there anything in that book that you would just go ahead and change that you just know is different now? Well, I would add a few chapters on how law has become a business. <clears throat> and it's, you know, when I started practicing 53 years ago, it was really a learned profession. Nobody would ever talk about how much money they made. It would be like talking about your sex life. And <laughs> so uh, it just uh, it just just wasn't done. Today, uh, law firms brag about how much money they're making, how much they're charging billable hours. Um, and, uh, you know, the conflicts that arise today between lawyers and clients and uh uh, I, I see these conflicts arising among my, my former students. I get calls about them all the time. It is about billing because that's the one area where there's a conflict of interest between the client and the lawyer. The lawyer wants to make the most money, and the client wants to pay the least money. 
And, um, you know, just to move to this issue, one of the reasons I've been consulting with this new company called Viewabill is because I believe very strongly that that problem can be solved by real-time, 24-7 access to the billing process whereby the client can look at what the lawyer is doing, where they're allocating funds, and um, can have input uh, before rather than after. Instead of complaining, uh, you can say, hey, why are you spending so much time on this? Why are you using an associate instead of a partner? So I think I would add a, a chapter on how to avoid conflicts over billing with clients, because I've seen in the last 10 years or so that's become a major source of dispute between lawyers and clients. You know, I in reading the book, I was you spent a lot of time talking about unethical practices by lawyers, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and uh, one of my <laughs> one of the quotes that stuck with me is, "You would look at your class and say, statistically, more of you will become criminal defense uh, criminal defendants than criminal defense lawyers." Unfortunately, that's been true. Yeah, yeah. that's still true, isn't it? <laughs> it is true uh, for two reasons. One, uh, very few uh, elite. Law school graduates become criminal defense lawyers. Um, mm. The money isn't as good. The elitism, the prestige isn't as good. Many of them become prosecutors, but that's a route to become civil litigators. And occasionally, in any class, you will find one or two or three people who ultimately call in what I offer them. I offer them a warranty of five years uh, time and labor and, and parts uh, if they get indicted for <laughs> anything they heard in my class. You know, uh, they actually made a, a TV program about this, you know, How to Get Away with Murder, which is a total ripoff right. of my book, Reversal of Fortune, and a and also a uh, proposal that my son and I made to various networks over the years about how I use my students. Um, so uh, you do get occasionally students calling and saying, I've had this problem, and I I need you to help me. Um, And uh, it's very important that students always keep their eye on the ethical ball. Mm -hmm. Um, Right at the beginning of the book, you start talking about how difficult it is to find lawyers to take advice from. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And I admit I was a little unsatisfied with your advice about how to gauge whether or not a particular lawyer is the sort of lawyer that a young, inexperienced lawyer ought to take advice from? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. How how do you tell how do you tell people to um, figure out whether or not this particular lawyer is worth listening to? It's very very hard, very very hard because lawyers with extraordinary reputations sometimes are not all that good, and some of the best lawyers just are not very well known around. So you have to ask a lot of people. Um, before you can pick a mentor or somebody who you can really rely on their advice. And there has to be wide, widespread consensus that this is the kind of person you can rely on. I was very lucky in my life. I had, you know, seven or eight great mentors, um, even though I'm now 76. I still have some. I mean, I think of Bob Morgenthau, who is the legendary district attorney of New York and who's 95 years old. So, you know, 19 years my senior as somebody to whom I can always go for advice. Uh, and um, I see uh, many others like that. One of the, I think you call, I'd call it a yellow flag or maybe a red flag is, um, I think you said to beware of anyone who tries to advise you to do the same sorts of things that they've done. And right. um, to look at, uh, their work product. Uh, I remember you saying that uh, there was a lawyer who was using the same provision in a brief that right. he submitted for decades. Um, right. And losing every time. Right. Uh, or just having it be ignored. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I think uh, it's very important that you understand that much advice is autobiographical. 
Many people you ask for advice will tell you, oh, this is the way I did it. This is the way you ought to do it. But you're different from the way they are, and you have to always adapt the advice to your own passions, your own needs, your own uh, priorities, um, your own excellences. So um, it's very rare that you can take advice whole hog and just uh, uh, as if you're buying a suit off the rack. It just doesn't work. I've also always been struck by the fact that um when we settle into our practice, I, I was a civil litigator and I, I sued debt collectors. I defended people sued by debt collectors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That gives me a perspective on the law that doesn't translate well to a family lawyer or a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I agree that, with that. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's hard to take a mentor that doesn't do the same sorts of things that you do. Mm-hmm. Well, my mentor, my main mentor for my career was General Telford Taylor. Nope. Two people could be any different. He was, you know, tall, handsome, waspy guy from upstate New York who had been a general in the Army. Uh, but he had a career that I wanted to emulate. He was a professor at Columbia and Yale. He was a major litigator, particularly Supreme Court human rights and civil rights litigator. He had been the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg. And he wrote many books, popular books, about constitutional rights. So I wanted to be like Telford Taylor. And, and, and I, turned out being like Telford Taylor. I mean, I emulated his life in many ways. He was very different than I was. Uh, and, you know, personally, although we were close friends, um, our personal lives went in very, very different directions. But professionally, I found somebody um, who was totally different from me, but whose life I could uh, emulate more than any of my other either professors who are full-time professors or litigators who are full-time litigators. I didn't want to be full-time anything. I wanted to have a career in which I touched on really all four aspects of, uh, of being a lawyer, and that is you know, being in court, being in the classroom, being a kind of public intellectual in the media, on television, and in the newspapers, and writing serious, serious books. The only thing I didn't do that he did is I never served as a government lawyer, and you know, part of me misses, misses that. I was never a prosecutor. I've never been. Uh, I've never worked for the government. I've consulted with the government on a number of cases, both state and federal governments, and I probably will consult with governments in in future. But uh, and I don't think of that as an incompleteness in my life. You know, there's an old. Uh, Jewish expression: With one rear end, you can only dance at uh, with two. You can't dance at two weddings. With one <laughs> rear end, you can't dance at two weddings. I have danced at multiple weddings, and my wife is completely convinced that I have several rear ends. So uh, I've tried my best to, you know, participate. You know, you uh, one of the other things in the book that struck me because um, it's it was comforting is that uh, at least 13 years ago, you said you still suffer from imposter syndrome, the feeling that you're, you're never sure that you actually know what you're talking about and, and that you really <laughs> ought deserve the, uh, the acclaim that Everybody, you've had. You've had think, you still do? Everybody does that. And, okay. You know, uh, there's a wonderful quote I have in my new uh, autobiography. It's called Taking the Stand, in which I quote a colleague of mine sitting around the table at Harvard Law School. This was during my last year of teaching. And I mentioned to him that Professor Alex Bickle, who had been also one of my mentors at Yale, uh, had said, uh, Alan, don't go to Harvard. You'll never fit in there. And the professor sitting across from me after 50 years of teaching at Harvard said, he was right. You never did fit in here. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't fit in. I don't easily adapt to uh, accepting other people's values. So I was an outsider for 50 years at Harvard. I was an outsider for three years at Yale. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, my status as an outsider is something 
I like, but, you know, it always makes me wonder. You know, I'm not as smart as people think I am. I'm not as successful as people think I am. Uh, and so uh, I'm not a humble person by nature, but I understand my own limitations, and uh, I'm prepared to admit them to myself, if not publicly. Well, it was it was actually, that was one of the most comforting things in the book. Okay, if Alan Dershowitz, who's had several long and distinguished careers, uh, has still wonders about this, then I, I suppose I shouldn't feel too bad about it if I do. No, and I still get nervous when I get up to speak, and I still get nervous when I get up to argue, uh, whether it be in the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals or state Supreme Court or federal court. I still, you know, have the butterflies, and, uh, you know, I always want to have that. I always want to be on edge, and I'm always over-prepared for all of my arguments. I mean, I read voraciously before an argument. I read every word in the transcript, every relevant word. I, You know, I read, read, and reread the briefs and read and reread the cases, and I think I can say with confidence that in 50 years of arguing, probably had between 250 and 300 arguments, I've never been asked a question that I didn't know the answer to. I never was asked a question that I wasn't prepared. Now, you know, some of the questions are, are absurd. Justice Scalia in the Supreme Court once asked me a hypothetical, what if a bank robber is running away from the bank robbery and he throws his gun to the other bank robber and says, here, here's a gun, use it. Uh, is he the trigger man for purposes of the death penalty or not? I mean, who could be prepared for a question like that? But I was able to answer it. And I think and you said you're so, still not, you're not, you still worry about whether you answered it the right way. Of course, you always worry. I mean, I saved their lives, ultimately. But you always worry about whether you've answered it the same way. You know, there are always the three arguments you make in front of a court. The one you think you made, the one you made, and the one you wish you made. Mm -hmm. And uh, only when you read the hard transcript do you realize, that, oh, my God, I probably could have answered that question better. One of the reasons I never read my own books, I haven't read Letters to a Young Lawyer since I wrote it, <laughs> is because I always am upset that I didn't, write better, didn't write more. I'm extremely self-critical of my, of my own work. So um, uh, I, I get very upset when I read my own books again. Uh, um, this will be a little bit of a change in direction here, but you have an interesting perspective on work-life balance. Uh, in mm -hmm. the book, you, you quote the old saying that nobody on their deathbed regrets working too much, but then you go on to say, well, some people probably should regret not working enough. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. How, how do we I find the balance? Well, it, everybody has to strike it uh, differently. I'm very lucky because I'm extremely efficient, and I get things done quickly and quietly, and I have a lot of time for family. So I think I struck in my own life the proper balance. I never missed any of my kids' athletic events. I never miss any of my daughter as a professional actor. I never miss any of her plays or readings. And, you know, I try very hard to strike the appropriate balance between between family and personal life. Uh, I go to a lot of theater and a lot of um, opera when I'm in New York. And But I work very, very hard. When I work, I really, really work. Um, so I think I, I've hit the right balance. But everybody has to strike it uh, differently. And, uh, you know, the ones on their deathbeds who have not been successful and might have been successful had they worked harder, I think sometimes regret that. So I don't like that cliche. I don't like very many cliches at all. Yeah. I, I suppose it's decide what's important to you and make sure that you focus on those things. 
um, with the balance across. And the other thing I say in my book is don't do what you're best at. Uh, you know, right. you might be best at something, but if it doesn't bring you joy, and if you're not passionate about it, don't do it. Um, obviously, you have to be good at what you do. Otherwise, if you know, if if I could choose what I wanted to do, it would be you know, point guard for the Boston Celtics or shortstop <laughs> for the Red Sox. But I can't do those things. So I noticed I that didn't work out for you. That didn't work out for me too well, but, uh, you know, uh, and I love litigation, but, um, I, 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 as a professor, I couldn't litigate as much as I'd like to, but now that I'm freer, I can. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I want to talk about Viewabill for a few minutes. Sure. Um, and I, I want to start by, uh, sort of easing into it because there is a quote in your book that is out of date and I want to give you a chance to update it. And I think I know where you're going to go, but, um, it is, you said there's hardly a city or town in America where an ordinary citizen could safely pick an honest lawyer out of the yellow pages. That's right. Yeah. Now, the yellow pages uh, are all but irrelevant these days for the purposes of legal marketing, I think. And so has this problem just gotten worse? Is Google even worse than the yellow pages? Oh, I think it's worse. I think it's gotten worse. First, there are more lawyers. Second, there are probably more unscrupulous lawyers. Um, and uh, and third, because with advertising, uh, you often tend to pick lawyers, you know, who are most visible, who have the signs on the way to the airport or uh, who are on television. So it's very hard for lay people to pick good lawyers. In fact, I had recommended some students some years ago to set up a firm uh, which would just advise corporations, business people, other people, how to find the right lawyer, how to match you with the right lawyer. It's, it's, it's a daunting challenge. Uh, do you have an AVO profile? I don't even know Speaking what it is. Which? Hmm? <laughs> well, in the, in the book, you talked about that concept of uh, sort of, well, the, it, this is on the public side, is uh, uh, people rating other lawyers, uh, consumer ratings of lawyers, and you thought that might be a way to help sort it out. Yeah, av- if it's done honestly. There's too much jealousy in the legal profession, yeah. though, and, and people try to, you know, uh, always find fault with people who are very successful. Uh, I, I'm I'm been very happy with my peer reviews, and um, and I'm very happy with my client reviews. My clients recommend me always to other lawyers because I'm accessible and I'm I'm easy to to talk to, and I work very very hard. But it's very very difficult to find the right lawyer unless you know people you can trust. So. Um... So I assume getting involved in Viewable must have been an opportunity to in, uh, enforce some transparency in the legal profession then. Well, that's what I've been looking to do for years and years and years. I, I wrote back in 1982 that the law is a secular priesthood in which lawyers hide behind their robes. And, um, you know, the original reason for wigs was that the lawyers were supposed to all be the same and you shouldn't be able to identify them differently by their facial features. That's why they all wore the same wigs. But no, um, visibility and transparency is absolutely important, especially in billing, because that's the area where there is the most inherent conflict of interest. And so uh, I like what Viewable is doing very much. And, you know, it's a, it's basically free avail- freely available, or very, very inexpensively available to clients who can then monitor what their lawyers are doing for them. After all, they're the clients and the lawyers performing a service. There, there should be no secrets. And the ability to look real-time and figure out how your money is being spent, how it's being allocated, who's billing, how much billing, how much of it's overtime, all that kind of stuff is very important. And I was brought on to make sure that there were no ethical problems, and I certainly don't see any at this point because the uh, uh, viewer bill keeps, maintains extreme confidentiality. And, uh, 
you know, you, you the client, you, the lawyer, arrange and decide what you want to have uh, available and, and, and what you don't. And uh, it, it seems to me it's a win-win that any good law firm should want clients to be able to look at what they're doing in real time and to create a better sense of trust. And uh, any client, you know, you don't have to look at it, but if you have any concerns or worries, uh, it gives you an ability to look at it real time and to correct the situation. So I'm a big fan. You know, when I when I first reviewed Viewabill, um, it was I, I think I came to the same conclusion that it's a great idea and law firms should want this, and so it's probably going to fail. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, uh, when when uh, the guys at Viewabill asked me to revisit those comments because um, it hasn't failed, and uh, no, and no, it has been, been a win-win. Well, yeah. It seems to have been a win-win for uh, law firms and clients. And it, it sounds like uh, law firms are actually using it internally to track associates' hours. And it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when I first heard about it, it's one of these ideas that you say, oh, my God, why didn't I think of this? It's so obvious. And it's such a win-win for, for both sides, if you're honest. And uh, it's something I think every client should insist on. And when I've mentioned it to uh, corporations and others, they've all said, wow, I didn't know it existed. It's a terrific idea. So, you know, I think it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenon whose time has not only come, but it's been long overdue. When, when the primary barrier to adoption is just that people haven't learned of it yet, and then when they do, they want to jump on board, that's a pretty compelling uh, <laughs> pretty compelling story. Yeah, and I think the more they learn about it, the more they want to do it. I think there's initial skepticism sometimes by some big law firms saying, oh, we've been doing it this way for 40 years and it's worked for us. Why do we need anything new? But then when they see what it really is, it creates a real sense of trust. And, uh, you know, law firms want to have uh, trust with their clients, and they don't want the complaints afterward. They don't want a guy coming in and saying, oh, we think you overbilled, reduce the bill by 20%. It's much easier uh, to have that negotiation in real time than after the fact when, you know, leverage has changed. Well, and I've, I've heard from clients, uh, general counsel, who are uh, requiring some viewable for their law firms because they want to be able to keep an eye on things are going, and it, it does seem to enhance their relationships. So and that's the key. That's the key. If if it improves um, the quality of the relationship through transparency, then it's you know it, it's so inexpensive. It's something everybody should do. So Viewbill is in the process of rolling out some firm-facing features to help firms help themselves. Uh, and this winter, just coming up very soon, they're going to be releasing uh, some new legal project management features designed for firms. Um, so it's it's expanding what it's doing, and the idea is to. Uh, prove that Viewbill can be a dedicated to strengthening the attorney-client relationship. Uh, and so, if you're if you'd like to give Viewbill a try for a free demo, you can go to firms.viewabill.com, and we'll make sure that link is in the post. Professor Dershowitz, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, my pleasure. What a good what a good interview. You asked me all the right questions, <laughs> and I enjoy doing it. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Be well. Bye. This podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists. Now, Ruby is a sponsor, but I was also a paying customer. Ruby answered the phones for my law firm, so I know what I'm talking about when I say you really should give Ruby a try. And you should. Callers regularly told me how nice my receptionist was. Ruby made it easy for me to make my clients feel well cared for when they called. But what really made Ruby stand out for me was the way they treated me. 
If you've heard me talk about Ruby before, you've probably heard this story already, but when my first daughter was born, I pulled up the Ruby app on my phone on the way to the hospital and updated my status so Ruby would know to hold my calls for 48 hours because I was going to be in the hospital for the birth of my first child. And then a few days later, when I checked in at my office, there was a little care package with a really nice onesie and a rattle and a bib and a couple of other things. And I was just so touched by that, obviously, because I'm still telling the story and now my daughter is six. But the point is that Ruby knows how to take care of people, both you and your callers. And I'm confident you will be just as happy with Ruby as I still am, because Ruby is still answering the phones now at Lawyerist. So you should give Ruby a try. And to do that, you just need to go to callruby.com slash lawyerist and sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. And if you aren't happy for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks with Ruby. I'm pretty sure you will stick around, though. But since there's no risk, you might as well try. To make sure you catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast, subscribe to The Lawyerist Podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. You can listen to it at lawyerist.com slash podcast. You can also subscribe to The Lawyerist Insider, our weekly newsletter. Just go to lawyerist.com and look down the sidebar or click on newsletter up at the top. We'll remind you where to find the podcast whenever we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.